Hi everybody, I'm Michael Davis. Welcome to Bone to Pick. And I am very excited to be in Los Angeles, California today. And uh, a really wonderful opportunity to interview one of the true virtuosos of the trombone, the great Bob McChesney. And I think that word gets used a lot these days, but uh, in the case of Bob McChesney, it's, uh, it's very meaningful. He really is a virtuoso. Uh, for those of you who have heard his uh, Carnival of Venice uh, recording on YouTube, it, uh, it is astounding, and he uh, truly is a virtuoso as soon as you hear that. And uh, I think uh, if you haven't checked it out, make sure you go uh, check it out right away. Um, he is also one of the great jazz trombonists anywhere in the country, uh, particularly here in Los Angeles. He's one of the top session players in LA. Uh, I consider him a very good friend of mine. We uh, spent a couple of years on Paul Anka's band back in the mid 80s, had a lot of fun, grew a lot together. I learned a lot from him as a player. And uh, um, so it's really great to be here today and get a chance to pick Bob's brain about uh, his extraordinary career and his extraordinary musicianship. Um, he has recorded a number of solo CDs. He's written some great books. We're going to talk about all those things. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule for being here today. Thank you, Mike, and uh, thanks for those kind comments. <laughs> hey, my pleasure. Me, me and every one of them. Um, why don't we jump right in and uh, talk about how you got started on trombone, maybe uh, growing up in Maryland, and then take us through maybe going to uh, State University of New York at Fredonia. Sure. Uh, I was... <laughs> Uh, I started, like most people, in the public schools. In fourth grade, they, they bring out all the instruments, and do you want to play one? And I said, geez, you know, uh, yeah, a trombone looked good. I guess uh, I was tall, had the long arms, but a lot of people have the same reason. Also, at the time, the Tijuana Brass was like a <laughs> big band. On, on I saw the TV specials, and that trombone player, he, he was kind of cool because he was in the background, but then he would jump out and do a little solo. I thought hey, that kind of fit my personality, so <laughs> trombone. And the, the other reason that I wanted to play an instrument was in, uh, in Baltimore at the time, you had to either be in the choir or play an instrument, something I think would be great if that was mandatory today, you know, in yeah, the music yeah. schools or in the public schools. But I had to sing that first year, and I was like, I hated that, so <laughs> I got to get out of here and pick an instrument. So it was another motivating factor. And... Uh, I just, it was kind of an easy start. The, the other thing, since, you, since we're talking about education, I was never really taught privately on trombone. I was, there were some group lessons at first and all the way through high school until I got maybe out of college. The most I ever had was a, a group lesson with four or five people sitting in the room with me. So I was allowed some freedom to mess around myself and discover some things on my own. Mm, cool. Um, then, then where did I go? Oh, my dad got a job in Rochester uh, when I was 16, so I wasn't a very serious player until I got up to, to Rochester, and then you have the Eastman influence there in Fairport. Yeah, sure. And the teacher said, boy, Bob, you sound great. I get, you got to get a professional horn now. So I talked my dad into getting a real, you know, I was playing a Bundy before that. And right. So he, I went out and they bought me a nice horn, and I started practicing, and then I moved up, and I was playing in the A concert band and in the jazz band. I was doing solos. So when it came time to go to uh, college, I still wasn't quite sure I could pull it off musically. So I went to, to uh, Fredonia, which is in Western New York, a great school, but I went as a business major. Mm. But the music program was so good and they had a student-run jazz program. So I figured, ah, I can go into that and still get the business degree. So that's how that all came about. And yeah. I, went, I graduated uh, four years later with a business degree not wanting to go into a business. <laughs> I wanted to, at that point, I, hey, maybe I will, but 
now if I'm going to go into music, now would be a good time to take a shot at it. You know? Yeah. Well, well, I'm still young. Thank, you know, thank God like, you uh, did for all so, of us. Uh, do you find like the business degree, do you ever tap into that at all? Do you get anything I don't. I, don't I haven't used it for anything external, I think. It's the knowledge I gained from it. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose maybe it helped secure some of my teaching positions or something. The fact that I've had, had at least have a bachelor's degree or something, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would say... Uh, the the thing I was the strongest at in business was like international economics and all these things that don't exactly <laughs> parlay into music marketing and things like that. But but uh, those are the things I really enjoyed the most. And, well, we, when we used to travel abroad with Anka, I noticed you, you seemed to do the best at the money changing thing. Like yeah. you had a real knack for that, so maybe yeah, right. it helped you in that at any rate. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so maybe talk to us a little bit now about um, you know what made you decide to move to LA. Um, you know, when that took place, and then and also just maybe touch on what it was like here in Southern California your first few years in town. Sure. Uh, well, right after I graduated, I, I was ready to, to do some playing, and my favorite bands, of course, were all those road bands. I wanted, I wanted to be on Woody's band really bad, and I wanted to be on, uh, get take a shot at either Buddy's band or Maynard's band. At that time, there were no openings. I had no connections. You have to kind of know somebody to get mm -hmm. in there. But uh, within a few months, I had a shot at the Buddy Morrow's band, which was the, uh, the Dorsey band. Mm -hmm. So, well, I don't have any other choice. Why don't I do this and go out and play for a while? So I had some friends on there. I lasted about four or six months. It was, it was a lot of hard work. Yeah. Two, yeah. two, three hit and runs a week, you know. And during the time I was on the road, I was like, Whoa, I don't know how much, <laughs> how much longer I could do this. My friends from Fredonia, a few of them had moved to Los Angeles. So when I, they kept saying, you know, we're starting a group out here. You've got to come out now. I don't know, you know, like, or we might get somebody else, you know. So they were kind of working me for a long time, you know, and I guess it really didn't matter when I came out, but they were trying to get me to come out. And uh, so I gave Buddy my notice and just threw everything I had in the car and drove. You know, I still had my, my home base was Baltimore. Even though I was on the road, my parents, I'm still like at my parents' house in Baltimore. Drove to Los Angeles and uh, with everything I had, stayed out there and got a room and started playing with those guys in a band. And uh, it was, as far as LA goes, it, it was very tough, you know, at first, and it's still tough. It's, mm -hmm. You know, it was uh, day gigs here and there for me, and a few gig, spotty gigs. And of course, the gigs with the band that I told you about, my friends, uh, we'd play at this place called the Flying Jib. And, other musicians that would play there would be like Vinnie Caliuta and all these great young musicians, you know, they're, you know, young lions and we play gigs like that. And I think it was, uh, I, after I, I'd been out here a few years and I made a demo tape, some, some pop stuff, some virtuosic, virtuoso things. And I sent that around and I, I started getting some calls for more and more sessions. I'd been mm. doing some casuals and things. So, I, and then it picked up a little, and then that's when, I got the call for Anka, and that's that's when I met you in the mid '80s, and mm -hmm. uh, that lasted what till '87, '86 or something. I think something. so. Yeah, I came back and I just been slugging it out little by little. You know, it was when you get off a road gig, it's pretty slow for a few years. So that was the time I spent writing. You know, I wrote some books and tunes and things like that, producing tunes with my wife, and yeah, did everything I could because it, 
you know, I was trying to recover from the loss, you know, being on the road for that long. It, it's like it's a very good point. Yeah. You know, you go on the road and you think, oh, this is you're at a higher income level, but you've got to amortize that out over the course <laughs> of the weeks and months after you get off when nobody's in your your phone isn't ringing. You know, maybe we could talk a little bit about the Yankee Gate because I, you know, it was fortunate for me that we got to do it together, and and uh, I became a big fan of your playing uh, when we were working together, and. Um, you know, Anka is a character, that's for sure. But I, I have to give him a lot of credit for always having great bands and always having great musicians. And, you know, even predating us, his trombone section at one point was Carl Fontana and Frank Rossellino. So obviously it doesn't get much better than that. And, and you know, we met, you know, I, I met you and met uh, lots of great folks, Kent Smith and Bob Slack and a lot of guys in the horn section and, and then uh, great Eugenio Toussaint and uh, sadly passed away. But, you know, one of the great musicians you'd meet anywhere. So maybe just talk a little bit about your feeling about doing that gig and what kind of impact it had on you. I think that, yeah, I think that was what was really great about Paul's band. He always wanted to have a, you know, a fearsome band out there. And he always had great brass sections. And I know some former conductors from Paul and, and I talked to, talked to them about Paul. He said, no, Paul was keenly aware that he had musicians like, you know, Frank, Carl, those guys, and you know, he knew what he had, and mm -hmm. you know, he loved it. You know, so, so that, yeah, that was it was great because there were so many really good players when we were out there. You know, it was it was never there was never any frustration about, you know, it just sounded great every night. And the chart, and we who was it? Michelle Columbier wrote. Some, yeah, Jerry Hay had written some of the stuff. Yeah, it was fun. He seemed. I remember he seemed always kind of torn about whether he wanted to jump full fledged into those into that book or keep going back to the Tori Zito the, and those guys we did some stuff. And those yeah. were great too. It was just yeah, a yeah. different uh, different uh, approach to arranging. I think I remember uh, back in those days and you were starting to work on your doodle book, which has become like the most important uh, staple in terms of trauma and pedagogy with regards to that uh, aspect of playing. But I also was very inspired by you working on your solo stuff at the time. And that was kind of what got me going. I thought, you know, wow, Bob's doing this. I should kind of look into that. And, and uh, that's interesting to hear that you say after, after Anka, that was kind of a, a fruitful period in terms of your writing then. I, I remember that practice, I must've been practicing four or five hours a day after that. And, mm -hmm. and just on technique and the classical jazz, everything. And trying to sort this doodle tongue book out. You want to talk about that now? For a yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I, the doodle tongue technique is something that everybody asked me about. So uh, I just didn't know how I learned it. I just always had been doing it. So I must have stumbled on it. Like, I think that's the same way Carl Fontana figured it out. It just found a mechanism to play fast legato on the trauma. Mm -hmm. So everybody would always ask me in college, how are you doing that? I don't know. Oh, that's called doodle tongue. I, I never heard of that. So the same thing was going on uh, when we were with Anka. You had mentioned some things. and well, You know, you guys... You ought to write a, and my father-in-law mentioned it too, put a little pamphlet out, how, how you do this thing. So I'm imagining like this little 10 page thing. Well, I'll go home, it'll take me 15 minutes, I'll write out how. <laughs> I st when I started to analyze the technique, I'm like, oh my God, well, well, I don't tongue that note, I slur it. Well, I, it became very complex. So at, it took quite a few years for me to you know, re write and rewrite and figure out what the rules and the method was for the tonguing and the slurring. and. And then I, then I had to perfect a way of teaching it to people who didn't, I wanted to reverse the process. Things that I had figured out without thinking about it, maybe other, teacher, other students had teachers saying, no, 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 that's not the way you do it. You know? <laughs> so now I have to have a, a practice routine so people could learn to do it. So I spent maybe, it probably took four years till I finished, after I was off of Paul Anka to, to get the book complete, com 
completed. Yeah. I thought I set out to spend a week on it. You know? It was like <laughs> one of those things. Of course, I wasn't working on it every day, but it, it took a while to, to come up with it. And, and I'm actually, I've been, I have a lot of students through Cal State Northridge, and I've, been, I've perfected the way that I, over the years, it's mm. even gotten better. Because mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. can see where some of the stumbling blocks are now that I, I couldn't see back then. You know? mm-hmm. so, it's fun. Yeah. Anybody, anybody can learn it, actually. Yeah. You have the patience. You just want to stick with it. For those of you, I, I, everybody knows about your, your uh, tremendous technique and ability in that range. But for those of you who don't know the book, I, I highly recommend it. It's the most, by far, the most comprehensive book. And, and most just, I remember seeing you a couple years afterwards, and I said, how's the book going? And you were like, oh, I'm pretty much, and you showed me, you had these big mock-ups, and you like, it was so, I knew at the time, oh, this thing's going to be, have some legs because it was so comprehensive and so well thought out and, and so detailed. Um, so it's great to see that years later it's uh, holding up as the uh, as the uh, industry source for that. Um, you know, it kind of leads into a question that's it's a little bit more specific, but I've, I've often found with your approach, and I think you hear this as a player and as a writer and as a producer and what you do, you have an amazing uh, attention to detail. And you're so thorough, and that book is the perfect uh, example of that. Is that something that's just a part? You think it's just a part of your personality in all facets of your life, or is it something you just, you know, obviously you care passionately about the music and you're playing, and you're you really are always trying to get the most out of yourself. But I was curious to ask you about that because I've, I've, I, to me, that's one of the things that makes you such a great musician and technician is that your attention to detail is extraordinary. I, I guess I, I never thought of it that exactly that way, but I do I do a lot of other things too, and I like as far as teaching or, or, or writing and and uh, do a little Photoshop dabbling and finale work and you know, and engineering and some produce. So and I noticed that I do have that way of getting down to I really want to get the details right, you know. And it's, I think so. It pervades. I guess it's always pervaded my life. You you have to be careful. When you have that ability to be so, you don't, you don't want to, there's a perfectionist problem if you, mm-hmm. when you get to that microscopic thing. And also not see, you got to see the big picture too. So just like when you work in Photoshop, you don't have to zoom way in. If you just stay in there, you could be really messing up your photograph pretty bad. Mm-hmm. You have to keep zooming out. Of, oh, like what's the concept of this music that I'm working on? So that the hard part of having that much, of a detailed focus is being able to back, zoom back out and, and, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, I know exactly like, what you're talking yeah, about. Like, you, you, you certainly have uh, have that in your in your sights at all times as well, I think. But, thank you. But, yeah. um, well, let's, carrying that one step further, let's talk about what, what I mentioned in the introduction is this, this phenomenal recording on Carnival of Venice that you did. And um, I, before coming out here, I wanted to just do a little, I had heard it, but I just wanted to, Check back in with him, do a little homework, and uh, it's got almost three hundred thousand views on YouTube, so which is phenomenal. I mean, it's just fantastic, and it should have that many. It's an amazing, uh, amazing work. Um, maybe just tell us, talk to us a little bit about you know what made you decide to do that, and and what the process was like in terms of taking on something of that level of substance. Okay. Uh, probably just being naive, I guess. I <laughs> what happened is uh, I got a phone call one day from the conductor from the Idaho Falls Symphony. And a friend, I don't know who recommended me to him, but he was looking for someone to play an Arthur Pryor piece 
with the Idaho Falls Symphony, which it's a regional orchestra up there. They, mm -hmm. they do a pretty good job of a lot of stuff. And they have Pops concerts. And, and uh, my name came up. Oh, Bob would be great. So he called me and said, I want you to do Arthur Pryor's version of Carnival of Venice. It's about a year from now. This is around 04, 05. I can't remember where it was. And I said, okay, I'm going to be brave. It's going to be tough, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> so within about a week, I realized that Arthur Pryor had never recorded Carnival of Venice. It was not one of his pieces. And that there weren't really any major, there were some trombone players that had done it, but no major orchestra recordings or anything. But I just stuck with it. I said, you know what, I'm going to just keep doing it. And I never told him. So as, the, as about a year went by, I had really developed a lot. I rewrote some things so I could play it. I slowed some things down. I worked on it. And applied the doodle tongue as much as I could to it. And as the concert got near, about a month out, he was trying. the conductor was trying to rent the music, and he goes, Bob, I just realized I made a terrible mistake. Arthur Pryor never recorded the <laughs> Carnival of Venice. I said, don't worry. I'm going to be okay. We're going to do it. So just rent the cornet version, you know, and we did it. And, it, and the concert went great. I had another piece that that uh, a friend of mine, Lou Forstieri, wrote a concerto for trombone that I performed up there too. And it was wild, it's got all kinds of stuff in it. So I did those two pieces and I, I felt really proud of myself to have, having done this thing and it was amazing. So a few months went by and I went, wow, this is under my fingers, I should make a, a studio you know, recording of this thing. So uh, this piano player friend of mine out here in LA, Alan Steinberger, who's like a virtuoso player, we got together a few times and worked on things, I played it when he was, he, and by the way, Alan used to play trombone, so he'd, oh, sorry, he'd wow. be, I'd be working right. on it, he'd be, he'd be shaking his head over there, you kind of <laughs> supposed to do that, you know, so, so he was great, and then uh, I put it together, I was wor actually working on a, a whole classical CD, it's still not finished, it's typical of the McChesney, uh, <laughs> so, but I did a bunch of tracks, and you, you can hear some things on the web that I've done, but I never finished the whole thing, and that's actually how the I Love You thing came about, mm. where I did the stacked mm. four trombone jazz. Sure, yeah, I was going to ask you about that as well. As a, uh, that was going to be the bonus track on the end of the classical CD. The classical CD has a bunch of solo performances, but also has a lot of stacked trombones and, and some trombone quartets and things. I, I, and I'm still going to do it. I'm uh -huh. it's half done. You know, uh -huh. And that whole thing was put that on the end, because you often hear in a Joe Alessi record, he'll do a, a jazz tune at the end or something. So I thought this would be a clever thing. But I'd been sitting on that thing for so long, I couldn't sit on it anymore. So I just said, ah, I'm just going to put it out and spoil it, spoil yeah. the record and just put the thing out. So that did pretty well, too. It's like Absolutely. You know, Tons of I anyway. That was the other one I was going to bring up. That's an amazing, uh, amazing arrangement and amazing performance on that. So, so one of my hopes and dreams someday is to do a whole CD of like Super Sax, that kind of thing where do pop, uh, standard jazz tunes, uh oh, <laughs> standard jazz tunes. All the way from top, uh, from top to bottom, like the Charlie Parker super sax thing, mm, mm. and harmonize them and do a whole record like that. I've actually proposed it to a few labels, but no one's bit bitten mm -hmm. on it yet. But I'd mm -hmm. probably just do it myself. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a lot of writing. It is fun, and playing it is, you know, it takes a while. So you know, you know, it's it's harder. So it it slows the process down when I think about it. You know, maybe let's talk a little bit now about. Um, your career here in LA and um, you know looking through your resume and of course I knew a lot of this already but you know your list of credits is beyond impressive Barbara Streisand, Shakira, Rod Stewart, Chicago, Natalie Cole, Diana Krall, Michael Buble, Ray Charles um, as well as a ton of TV work The Simpsons, Family Guy, King of the Hill. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about that aspect of your career 
uh, the success you've had and, and how, uh, you know, how, what's your feeling about doing that type of work? Uh, compose my thoughts here for a minute. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm really grateful that I've been able to, to do that kind of work. You know, it always, you always feel really proud to come out of a great session where you got all these great musicians and the pitch and the time and it's so well organized and everything is just so beautifully orchestrated and working with these great arrangers and composers. Mm -hmm. I feel really lucky and, and you always get this sense of oh, hey, somehow I'm chosen. I'm, I'm, you know, there's not that many people that get to do this for a living, you know, when you get sure. to do something yeah. like that. And uh, on the other hand, one of the things that, and this is probably a very common thing I'm about to say is, I spent all these years training to be a soloist and to express myself. So my first love is always to be able to play melodically, be heard, and mm -hmm. and 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 do solo work and and and, uh, and teaching and expressing music and things like that. So when when I think about the studio work, I'm really really proud to be a part of it, and it's always great to to do it. But on the other hand, it feel it's it's also the day job part of my career kind of thing. I I like to somewhat detach it like you can't go into those kind of jobs expecting hey bob let me hear all that great stuff you've been working on because you're not going to get a chance to do any of that right you have to you have to take your personality to a different place you have to be almost unintelligent in a way you, you just dumb mm -hmm. yourself down here i am what do you want me to play and you just do it and you and there's a definite skill to that you know yeah. but so you are pulling back inside yourself to play that kind of work, as you know, mm -hmm. you know, so, mm -hmm. so there's pleasure in it, but it isn't the deep satisfaction you get from, from interacting and playing, playing with guys, not just from exposure, but just from the improvisational point of view with other guys. Like, mm -hmm. To me, that just like gets me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that the one thing I'm still trying to cope with that the Carnival of Venice gets way more hits than, than the jazz solos that I've done, because to me, that's really, oh man, Oh, but but playing a technically hard written thing seems to perk everybody's attention. I don't quite understand it. There's more coming. I got plenty more. I'm gonna do more. But uh, but I've always uh, my my first love was just you know sounding like Freddie Hubbard. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's yeah. what, to me that was it. You know, like a, well, I I share those sentiments exactly, and and it's a, it's a very good observation on what you know studio work is. Yes, absolutely. You know, we're all grateful that we get an opportunity to do that work and a few people do, but from a creative standpoint and, and expressing yourself, it's, that's not what, you're not going to find it from that. That's not the job. You're a hired gun. You got to yeah. sit down be quiet and give them, I mean, you're there for a reason because they know you're going to be able to cover anything that comes along, but not, not very often does too much come along, but they know you're, you know, they still want you there. So, right. so you right. feel proud and you do you do as good a job as you can, but you got to put all that other stuff down. For you got to yeah. close the door on that just for a few hours. You yeah. Know? I wanted to touch on your your CD, No Laughing Matter, music of Steve Allen, which I think is a fantastic uh, recording. Um, you know, we, we touched on uh, the I Love You uh, recording. I also wanted to just maybe have you talk a little bit about some of the producing that you do. I know you've done some work with your you know very talented wife Calabria. Um, how do you look at these projects and what, you know, what, what makes you decide, okay, I'm going to take this project on and try to go for this and, and how, how do you approach those things? Well, with the, the stuff with my wife, I just, you know, she says, I want to do this and I get excited. I get to, <laughs> you know, first of all, I have to do it because she tells me I have to do it. But no, no, I, I look at it as an opportunity to do some string writing and, and 
really, if I can fit it into my schedule, put this whole thing together. And, and I'm really proud of the way it comes out. And, and, yeah. and it features her great singing and everything. And uh, I would like to do some more producing, but it, you know, it's a competitive field as well. I, I have been asked to do a few things. Last year, I did a Peter Marshall record. He did a 40 oh, swing, so right. 40 swing wow. record where he had me play the, I, I represented the Tommy Dorsey guy, although I didn't play that way. He did a lot of those tunes from the Dorsey area, so I produced that. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I know there's been two or three others, you know, like mm-hmm. little little things that come up because I think they notice my attention to detail or whatever. They know yeah. it's going to be okay. Yeah. And so, so I, I pretty much uh, enjoy all that stuff and lots of kinds of music too. You know, like I'm produce, I'm doing something for one of my daughters. Oh, wow. pop, she's writing pop tunes. Nice. You know, like that, so. Producing her guitar playing and singing and everything, so it's you know. Oh, that's great! We'll all look different forward to hearing that. I, I think you're right, though. I think if especially for a, a producer who's hands-on, like you would be, because your musical knowledge, you can basically do whatever needs to be done. That attention to deal has got, excuse me, attention to detail has got to pay a tremendous dividends for the artist that's working with you. You know, they know they have, they feel secure that they're going to get a good a good product in the end. I should. I've got a couple tracks coming out this week. Oh wow! I did uh, a recent uh, recording session, and I'm working on an album that um, I got a Latin rhythm section together, and I also have some tracks that I'm finishing up now that I did with uh, Larry Goldings and Bill Stewart. So some original wow. tunes and stuff. But the stuff coming out this week is a preview. One is a uh, fast Latin original thing I wrote, and Arturo Sandoval's featured on it. Luis Conte, our friend from, oh, the, from of years ago, Best. and. Uh, I've got uh, Jimmy Branley on drums, and um, and Atmaro Ruiz, if you haven't heard him, is this awesome uh, Venezuelan piano player. It's a, it's so that's a burner. And then I have a a ballad on um, the first time I ever saw your face, all jazzed mm. out. So maybe wow, I'll, maybe exciting. maybe some smooth jazz people will perk their ears up at that. It's pr- it's it's hip, but it's beautiful. It's still mm-hmm. like the melody. You know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. So those are coming out, and those are previews because the album will be out before the end of the year, hopefully. Okay. And and so that it's the launch date is actually the eighth of August, so that'll be up and very cool. It should hit radio. I've got somebody helping me with the radio promo and everything. Mm-hmm. So, wow. and and uh, it, Glary Goldings was awesome. He helped me with some of these arrangements. He, he so spent great. a lot of time in New York, right? So yeah, I've worked with Larry a number of times. Really amazing musician. Really incredible. Well, that sounds great. We'll look forward to hearing that. And uh, played some organ on it. He played a little yeah. B three on there. <laughs> yeah, oh, his B three playing is. Uh, that Michael Brecker record, Times of the Essence, where <laughs> yeah, it's just him with a different drummer on every track. Amazing. Um, well, we'll all look forward to hearing those for sure. Um, you know, you're, you're very active worldwide as a clinician and as an educator. Um, kind of goes hand in hand with the work you've done as an author. Um, you have a new book out now, Jazz Etudes and Duets, that's doing very well and lots mm-hmm. of people making a lot of noise. Um, maybe you can talk about, you know, just how you approach things uh, from a clinician educator standpoint, and then maybe touch on the new book as well. Uh, well, as far as the new book goes, I just thought it was time for me to do something. And one of the one of the areas that I thought hadn't been fully saturated was doing a difficult jazz solo. Mm. You know, there's a lot of books out where you have uh, intermediate and beginner jazz solos where kids are trying to learn, and I'm going to do some of those as well. But I was going, where are the solos that are like, Right up on the edge, you know. So kind of expanded on the back of my Doodle Tongue book where I had some shorter etudes on there. So that's why I did that. And um, I thought they're difficult, but if I do some slower versions too that 
that it would be great. And they, it's good for all instruments too. So a flute player can play a medium slow jazz tune and they're, they're not just playing diatonic scales, they're playing jazz harmony. So mm-hmm. that was my whole concept of that. And uh, it was just, just for fun. Yeah. You know, so I did it, you know. Uh, and I write those things. People ask me how I wrote that I love you and those etudes. I try to write them as if they're a jazz solo that I would play. Of course, they're a little more dense because it's educational. You don't want to leave three bars of space like you might in a jazz club, right? right, right. So I fill it in. It's going to be a little more intense. But I don't just play solos. A lot of people I see on the web, they say, do you write your solos uh, based on, you, you play a solo and then you transcribe it and harmonize no, I think that would be too open and too loose. So I try to write a good line and write another line that sounds like it's part of that line. But in essence, they're a little busier than I would play live, I guess. Mm-hmm. But so I conceive of the line as a composition. And then I'll go back and harmonize it or write the syllables if it's a doodle thing or whatever I do. I do that, all that stuff after. Mm-hmm. Just, that's another point about doodle tonguing. It's like I spend so much time talking about it and analyzing it. But the truth is... When I play, I don't think about that stuff at all. I'm, I only think about it when I'm asked or presented with a problem like that. I just, you just think of the music first, and these techniques all support it. You know? Right, right. So if anybody was wondering about that, you know, like yeah, a, no, I, go, I think that's yeah. and your your yeah. musicianship it comes through. You know, you don't sound like uh, somebody who's just playing for flash. You're playing music, that, and and occasionally the virtuosity helps helps propel the music. You know? The hard thing is not to, you know, you got to be careful not to overplay, right? That's one of the things that we all have to work on, like uh, who, the, the great quotes from the masters is like uh, the space, like the space that you use is actually a very important part of the music. Right, it has to right. be there, you know. It's like, Whatever that famous like, Miles quote yeah, yeah. was, is, but uh, it's not yeah. what you play, it's what you leave out. Yeah, yeah, something like, along, yeah. along those lines. Um, maybe we'll shift gears here a little bit and, and as we kind of wind down, um, you know, you've we were talking before the interview started. Um, I've certainly seen it in New York over the last 25 years, and in particular in the last 10 to 15 years. But I'm assuming there's been significant change here in the music business uh, in, L- in L.A. since you got here in the mid-'80s. Um, maybe you could take, you know, maybe just give us your impression on the current state of the scene here in L.A. and maybe where you see things going in the future. Oh, well, I don't think there's any question that things are down since the because when I first moved here in the '80s, there was just a lot of television. Every show had trombones on it, you know. And with the invention of MIDI and the internet and the hard drive and the tastes in music and everything, things are just generally down. But I also know that there's cycles and trends. I which so I know things will come back, whether they come back in five or ten years or. 50 or 100. I just don't know about those cycles. So, but I'm always hopeful that I, that I there's always more opportunity for me to do what I do and and uh, to be heard. And I think one of the things that would help help uh, the music business and I think the quality of people's lives would be if we could get the education back, music education back the way it was when I went to school. Where you got to you have to sing or play an instrument. It doesn't mean you have to be a professional musician, but it increases, it's been proven that music enriches your life. It improves your intelligence. It just makes you, you know, it makes life worth living. We can you imagine a world without music and, and not being exposed to it as a student? Why, that's a crime. You should be, you should, everyone should uh, go through the band or the choir. And I think that, that will be one of the things when that comes back, that the trends for 
a great score on a television show or a, the pop music will become even more sophisticated. I love pop music, but let's face it, it isn't getting any more sophisticated lately than it used to be. So, <laughs> Safe to say. So, so I, I, I know the, the trend is definitely down in L.A., but that doesn't mean that it'll always be that way. You know, it's just things are, there's been so many changes with the, especially with the advent of the internet, so that musicians can live almost anywhere and contribute to a project. You know, it's been mm -hmm. amazing. You know, so, mm -hmm. so in some ways it's good for others mm -hmm. that might not live in a, in a city, but it's definitely being diluted out of Los Angeles like it was in, remember Chicago, 30 years ago was one of was like the jingle capital of the United States I and mean, sure. like, yeah. I don't think they do anything so so things get diluted you know with with the invention of the internet and things that's just sort of my perspective I don't know I'm trying I'm, I'm always hopeful for what I can do the trend is down but it might not always be that way so yeah and the passion for music is what people need to get again and not tolerate substandard obviously it's much cheaper for a producer to have one guy play a couple of synth sample pads and it gets the job done. It's never gonna be cheaper to hire real musicians to play and express themselves, but it's always gonna sound better to have great musicians playing on a score. But when that matters again to the audience more than that's the budget, happen, you know, right? that's when yeah. it's gonna happen. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, well, it's very well said, and it very uh, you know it's a very pragmatic and, and realistic viewpoint of it. I, I think it's you know, and I think I think your point about cycles is very true. You know, things do go in cycles. We don't know when they're gonna ebb and flow, but I, I do think there's cycles. It's um, not a renaissance right this moment, that's no. for sure. You know, it's like, <laughs> but it, you know, it could, sometimes things get really silly before they pop up. You know, and all of a sudden the, the guy on the street corner that plays. Society will become most fascinated with him, you know, or right. with you know who would have predicted reality television, right? Like it could be reality television about us, yeah, playing trombone, you know, like that's the next one, right? You know, yeah, it's like absolutely. A, you know, it's like well, it, Bob, I just wanted to close out with one question, and and it kind of feeds into what we're talking about now. And as an educator, and you you mentioned Cal, your work up at Cal State Northridge, you know, I know there are a lot of trombone players out there who think I want to be the next Bob McChesney, and I I, I study what he plays, and I study his technique and I'm working on that and I'll come study with him and all of those things and I'm sure the thought crosses your mind but what what if you had to kind of pare it down to you know one or two pieces of advice for somebody who's out there thinking I want to be the next Bob McChesney what what, what might that be I'd say there's a few things I would say you have to listen really critically you have to listen to what you want to what you like and what you want to sound like and that means listening repetitively to the same thing over and over until it comes out of your pores. You're just mm -hmm. living that music, like I did with with uh, Freddie Hubbard or, or you know particular tenor players. There's so many great musicians. So critical listening, and then uh, extreme repetition and paying attention to detail, so that things become mastered. What mastery means playing in a natural way without any conscious thought. You could that that level means that I could be playing a piece or jazz scales while you're giving me directions to my job and I'm hearing every word you're saying and the, and the stuff is still being played. Mm -hmm. Now that, it's, it's much easier to say that than do it. It takes a, a lot of, lots of repetitions. But I, I it's, a, it's a little bit lonely, right, when you're working on that, but I've always found that to be fun. Mm -hmm. I'll, put the, I'll put the television on soft or something, you know, and I'll be working on things that I want to work on. Now I don't do that for all kinds of practicing, but 
when things become internal and natural, I think when we hear the great players, it sounds they sound like it's easy for them, and and when it sounds like it's hard, then it doesn't, then it's not uh, rewarding. It doesn't sound good. So you're you've got to listen, go back over, it. listen critically, repetition until mastery. Uh, have a, have like a uh, person that you strive to sound like on another instrument or your own instrument. Like I have an idol, you know? mm -hmm. and that that can give you inspiration because we all get tired, and then you go, oh god, and then I hear this guy again, and I want to sound like that. That can help. Uh, and performing as much as possible. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a balance of, of listening, practicing, and getting out there and trying and doing your best. If you're just living in the practice room and, and listening, you, if you don't get a chance to express yourself, that's another factor. So say if you, if you wanna play great, listen, practice relentlessly, and, and uh, get out there and do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a sort of, I don't know, I don't think it's anything new but maybe we were all looking for a shortcut. And that's what I see in a lot of you. It's like, well, I don't want to learn all that bebop, or I don't want to practice. I can do this pretty good now. And it's like, no, just give yourself plenty of time. Mm -hmm. Repeat, 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 repeat until it's all that old stuff, you know? And that's when that really pays off. That's when, yeah. you, that's when those things start to sound good. So that's always been my philosophy. Yeah, it's great you know, advice. Like, I mean, that's like, and, and the way you yeah. put it too, it's very concise. and. Yeah digestible you know but listen bob it's been awesome to see you again and uh thanks so much for taking the time and you know sharing so much of your insights and uh and uh you know we we all uh we appreciate the amazing playing you do and and you're putting out the music all the time it's just great for all of us so uh keep doing it we're thrilled to hear that there's new stuff coming everybody make sure they uh check it out but uh it's been great to see you bob thanks thank you so, so much. much mike i appreciate and we it we will thanks see uh, we'll see all of you next time on bone to pick mm -hmm.